0: My special guest for the evening is a great biblical scholar. James Kugel is these days professor of, um, rather, is the director of the Institute for the History of the Jewish Bible at Bar-Ilan University in Israel, and was for a number of years professor of Hebrew literature at Harvard University. I'm told that yours was the most fully attended course in the undergraduate curriculum at Harvard.
1: Uh, Well, actually... I. Uh, It it wasn't uh, uh, always uh, so fully attended, but it was a big course. Uh, uh, I saw a figure of 800 students. Well, actually, um, some years it was in the high 900s. Never quite made 1,000.
0: That's really something.
1: Well, I'd I'd like to think it was the lecture, but the truth is it's uh, good material. (laughs) It is indeed good material. The material is the Tanakh,
0: the Hebrew Bible. Otherwise known as the Old Testament. Yes. There's the first point that needs clarification, though. The Christian version of the Old Testament isn't totally the same as the canonical Hebrew Bible, is it? Well, I'm
1: not sure. There, uh, there's a Christian. There are various ones. Right. But uh, but uh, the order of the books, as uh, as it's presented in Christian Bibles, is a little uh, a little different from the one that uh, is uh, found in Jewish Bibles. But it's basically the same material.
0: I want to begin at the beginning. I, while uh, just before you came into the studio, I did the pre-introduction to the program, and I read the first two verses uh, of the Book of Genesis in English. Would you favor us with the same verse, the same two verses in Hebrew?
1: <laughs> well, I don't. I really don't have them in front of me, but I'll uh, do the best I can by heart. It says, "Bereshit bara Elohim et haShamayim ve
0: So said Moses, he being the author of the first five books of the Bible. And with that assertion, we already
1: run into a problem, don't we? Well, right. I... uh, uh, I, I have to say the book that uh, I've written now combines two things that are uh, not often combined i've I've always been interested in um, the history of the way people have understood the Bible in the past and especially uh, people in the distant past going back to really the end of the biblical period uh, and on the other hand I'm also interested in modern biblical scholarship and And they often uh, disagree on the way they understand biblical stories and passages, including this one. What would modern biblical scholars say about the
0: authorship of the five books of Moses, so-called?
1: Well, modern scholars uh, generally are... uh, They don't agree uh, about the particulars, but generally modern scholars are of the opinion that... uh, uh, the uh, first five books of the Bible, the Torah, as they're called in, in Hebrew or the Pentateuch in sort of English, uh, is really the product of different authors.
0: In fact, would modern biblical scholars uh, still be able to agree that there was, in fact, an historical Moses? Hmm. Well, that's certainly a
1: subject that's um, uh, still debated. Some would assert there was not. Uh, I think uh, there are quite a few that would assert if uh, that, that if uh, Moses uh, d- uh, did indeed exist as a historical figure, we don't really have anything that can be traced back directly to him. In fact, is it not the case,
0: and uh, examining the further fruits of modern biblical scholarship and related modern biblical archaeology and so on, that we have virtually no proof, no evidence at all, of Israel and Egypt, no proof of, uh, uh, pr- uh, of the first exile and of the exodus and all of the rest, which is featured in the book of Genesis.
1: Well, actually, we, we, um, we do have some uh, uh, quite uh, historical evidence um, of the presence of uh, Western Semites, uh, as they're called in Egypt. Um, it probably wouldn't be historically accurate to identify these, uh, at least this is what archaeologists say, as uh, Israelites, but they come from the same basic uh, population base. And they, uh, and throughout um, the history of Egypt at that time, there were periods when uh, these Western Semites uh, went down to Egypt. Uh, for a brief while, they even ruled Egypt uh, and then uh, retreated. <laughs> How do we know that for a brief while they ruled Egypt? Well, we have, uh, you know, uh, Egyptian records. It's really quite striking. that Those uh, little Mm -hmm. squiggles and pictures of Mm -hmm. birds and so forth that uh, have fascinated Westerners for centuries and centuries. Um, for a long time, no one could make any sense of them, but then uh, uh, starting uh, in the uh, 19th century, early 19th century, um, we began to be able to uh, read these uh, odd signs, and they contain a wealth of information. There's a huge amount of material in these Egyptian hieroglyphs, as they're called, and uh, and so we know a lot about the history of that period. Uh,
0: that, by Virtue of and as a special gift from Napoleon and his scholar Champollion, absolutely, who decoded the Rosetta Stone, mm-hmm. which gave us access to Egyptian hieroglyphic writing.
1: He was a, an amazing fellow. I I always knew that he was thought of as the father of Egyptology, mm-hmm. uh, but I never realized that he started out quite so young. He uh, was um, he, he lived in the provinces, I think, in Grenoble. And he he was a, a great linguist. He, his uh, older brother, I guess, had led the way, uh, but he learned uh, Hebrew and Aramaic mm-hmm. and um, various other Semitic languages and even Chinese, it seems, at a certain point. And then he became interested in, um, in ancient Egypt, even before the discovery mm-hmm. of the Rosetta Stone, uh, and wrote his first uh, scholarly paper. Uh, uh, this will impress any academic mm-hmm. at the age of 16 and uh, was appointed a professor, I think, in, in his early 20s. But coming
0: back to modern biblical scholarship, the modern biblical scholars certainly do not view the the Old Testament, the Tanakh, as uh, a an accurate historical record. To the contrary, they know there's some history in it, particularly in the later books, and history that must have some foundation in fact. However, it may be distorted or tilted. But as for the God creating the heavens and the earth, and as for Adam and Eve in the garden and as for all that follows, including uh, Father Abraham and Jehovah, Jehovah sing, singling him out and so on, we view all of that, But well, what modern biblical scholars view all of that as what
1: exactly? Well, I I think it's important to, to say, I have to give a plug to um, these ancient interpreters that I'm interested in. A lot of what ordinary people think about these stories um, Uh, Is actually not in the stories themselves. Uh And uh, it's really been um, the job of modern scholars. The ancient interpreters were so good at uh, doing what they did that they basically convinced uh, people that their interpretations, which were sometimes um, wildly creative, were what the texts actually meant. Well, let's turn to them then, because of course you draw the distinction between the modern biblical.
0: Scholarly approach and the ancient interpreters, and by ancient interpreters you include a broad range of, of interpreters doing exegetical work, but basically it, that refers to what in Hebrew is known as midrash. Well, these
1: uh, uh, these interpreters really began maybe even before that uh, that term had the meaning mm-hmm. that, uh, that it, I, They begin as early as three hundred. B.C. or C.E. as one might choose. Right, but, but uh, 300, uh, well, uh, before the Common Era, or B.C., as we say, um, uh, that's really the towards the end of the biblical period, but uh, frankly, the last books of the Bible or the last lines of the Bible haven't been written yet. Around that time, there arose a school, or maybe a bunch of schools of interpreters, who set out to um, um, read these stories, I'm not sure how conscious this was, it's, it was a position that slowly evolved, but they certainly set out to read these biblical stories in a way that we now know, thanks to modern scholars, w- was very much out of keeping with their original meaning. So. Um, when they read the uh, well, I, I guess I could put it this way, modern uh, just ordinary churchgoers or Bible readers uh, all know that the story of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden is uh, the story of the fall of man, and that um, up you know at the beginning, humans lived a perfectly uh, sinless. Uh, uh existence but and, in
0: adam's fall we sinned all
1: exactly then along came the, you know the devil or uh, satan and tempted eve in and, the form of a serpent right in the form of a serpent and, and got her to eat uh, uh, the apple and um, and that's uh, when humanity lost its uh, sinful existence and, and be, became mortal and got kicked out of well of course none of what i said is actually in the story in genesis it uh, says nothing about the fall of man uh, and it says nothing about a sinless existence and the snake is just a snake he's not described as the well, something devil
0: is they've it. done something wrong and god does expel them from the garden
1: right well the interesting thing is that uh, that you know modern scholars when they look at this See it uh, quite differently from uh, these ancient interpreters. Uh, I think modern scholars um, uh, generally see this uh, this story as having more to do with a change in lifestyle than a, uh, a passage from sinless mm-hmm. uh, sinlessness to sinfulness. Uh, so what we think we know about uh, the Old Testament and the great stories of the
0: particularly early in the Old Testament, isn't really there. Rather, it's laid on in interpretation by the exegetes, even in the centuries before
1: Christ. Well, I, I'd say, I'd put a little different, I'd say that these um, uh, ancient uh, interpreters or exegetes, that they Really had a program. They wished to see in these ancient scriptures, mm-hmm. and I—I I should say the 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 Bible or the texts that make up our Bible. Some of them had been around for centuries and centuries before they came along, um, before these interpreters came along. But the interpreters um, really had a purpose in uh, explaining these stories. They wanted to. They had um, a program. Yeah. Oh, right. What was it? Well, they wanted to see them as a kind of guide to daily life. Mm-hmm. What you ought to do today. Now, a lot of the stories were talking about things that happened a long time before, and so it required some interpretive uh, ingenuity. Does all of this
0: have something to do with the return from Babylon, with the end of the Babylonian exile?
1: Well, it's true that in in the biblical period there's a big, uh, 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 perhaps in in some ways the most significant event, is when uh, uh, the uh, uh, kingdom of Judah was conquered. Uh, by the Babylonians, and much of the country's leadership was uh, exiled to Babylon for a little more than half a century. And when they came back, they had a, a very different um, view of the world. and. Uh, and of themselves and have to
0: get things organized
1: again oh sure and and uh, I guess under those circumstances one should say uh, not all of the Jews who were exiled came back Uh, some of them stayed in Babylon Mm -hmm. and they left in 1951 (laughs) Uh, that's to say it was no longer Babylon but Iraq Uh, but uh, but the ones who did uh, return to Zion uh, back uh, after the Babylonian conquest were uh, many of them very idealistic and um they um, I, I suppose some of them felt that the babylonians had conquered them because uh, they were stronger but uh, but uh, at least the bible contains a different explanation that that god had allowed them to be conquered because they had sinned yeah. they had broken their uh, agreement or covenant with god so they set out to uh, to make things better this time and not allow that covenant to be broken
0: We are about to do something that you don't have to do if you're (laughs) reading the Bible. We're about to pause for some commercials. (laughs) Um, But I want to establish first, before we take that brief pause, that you are um, an Orthodox Jew. Yeah, that's true. You define yourself that way, though I have a little difficulty being absolutely sure that you are, because you don't insist on the inerrancy of the biblical stories. To the contrary, you see them as symbolic, as metaphorical, as as, um, mysteries that need unfolding and uh, whose meaning needs to be sought. All the same, we'll talk about that, about various moods within Orthodoxy, perhaps, but all the same, I'm fascinated by your reconstructions or your interpretations of many of the great stories. We've just touched upon one of them, namely the expulsion from the garden. And uh, just what you make of that story and the way it is told, not merely in uh, the book of Genesis, but the way it's told uh, in, The Talmud and in the in in Midrashic commentary, uh, that is where we might begin examining modern or plausible meanings that can be drawn, even with an attitude of orthodoxy, from those stories, so as to somehow illuminate our human condition. We'll pursue that as we continue directly with James L. Kugel, author of the new book How to Read the Bible, right after these words. And my very special guest for the evening is James L. Kugel, author of the new book, How to Read the Bible, A Guide to Scripture Then and Now. This is a major undertaking, and it's a wonderful book. It is published by Free Press. I want to say once and instantly, you are a superb writer. The no, style you. is flows beautifully. It, uh, it has um, just great, colorful writing, vivid metaphor, and always available. There's nothing obscure about this at all. Uh, it, it captures the reader. Well, as uh, I say, it's great material. It's just, yeah, uh, you've got pretty good, you've got a pretty good co-author, whoever <laughs> that, whoever set of co-authors, whoever they may have been. But let's come directly back to the garden. Indeed, I want to begin uh, this segment by playing uh, a reading of um, uh, a portion of the Book of Genesis. Uh, that is the uh, Adam and Eve with the serpent, and here it is. Well, I, one notes, of course, there's no mention there of an apple. You don't know that it's not an apple tree, whatever it is. Right.
1: Uh, that's a much later
0: it what, so. what did the ancient interpreters make of that story? What do modern biblical scholars, including you, make of that same story?
1: Well, there's uh, so much, uh, really, uh, one could go on and on. But one interesting thing about the passage, that, uh, which is, of course, not the full story, but uh, just the passage that was read, um, that ancient interpreters uh, uh, noted on had to do with um, whose fault it was. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, everybody uh, came to understand this uh, as a, uh, a story about a, a major change in, in the nature of human life, which it uh, really doesn't seem to say in, in the original. But um, all ancient interpreters um, uh, seem to have understood this as the origin of human mortality. That, uh, uh, that uh, as a result of what happened in the garden, all humans were uh, now condemned to die, and before, uh, presumably, they had at least had the possibility of, uh, of living forever. Uh, there's another tree besides the tree that they're not supposed to eat from called the tree of life, and interpreters uh, thought it might be there because every couple of hundred years you'd take a little fruit from the tree of life and keep on living endlessly. But, um, after they sinned, uh, they were kicked out of the garden and uh, and became mortal. Um, so, whose fault was this? everybody uh, uh, you know, almost everybody said it was the woman's fault. after all, uh, Eve was the one who was first uh, 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 you know um, convinced to eat uh, of this fruit by the snake, and uh, And uh, she only gave the fruit uh, afterwards to Adam to eat. So, uh, you know, it it must have been uh, her fault. But it's interesting uh, that uh, a kind of proto-feminist school of uh, biblical interpreters uh, existed way back then. And they said it wasn't Eve's fault at all. And uh, they had a good proof uh, from the passage that we just read. When God um, puts uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden, he says, you can't eat from this uh, tree because uh, when you eat of it, uh, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, but he doesn't, uh, you know, uh, he, he doesn't obey. He ends up uh, eating from this uh, this fruit.
0: But he uh, doesn't die on that he day He doesn't either. die.
1: That was, uh, that was a separate problem. And, yeah. uh, but uh, but uh, people notice that in the passage that we just heard, when the serpent comes up to Eve and he says, basically, uh, what are the rules around here? You can't eat any of this stuff, and and she says, oh no, we can we can eat any of this fruit, just the tree in the in the middle of the garden that we can't eat from that because uh, because God said, do not eat of it uh, or even touch it, even touch it. But of course, God didn't say that, uh, at least not when he was explaining things to Adam. So. Um, So, uh, why would it say, why would she say, don't eat of it, don't even touch it? Uh, And people came to the conclusion that this must have been told to her by Adam. Adam had been given the rules by God don't eat of this fruit. And then he added in a little rule on his own uh, don't touch it.
0: Why did he do that? That question? hangs in the air, and we return to it, the answer to be provided directly after. We go to the newsroom for an update uh, from We're going to go on shortly to some other major Old Testament stories. In fact, I want to get to Father Abraham and the formation of the Jewish people as represented in the Old Testament. But before we do, back to Adam and Eve in the garden. So you say that uh, even the old interpreters recognized that it wasn't God who forbade the eating of the fruit or the touching of the tree, it was Adam who did.
1: Well, I'd say, in general, those ancient interpreters um, uh, felt about the text that every detail in it was significant, Uh, and uh, if you read the story of Adam and Eve uh, 10 or 20 times, you probably wouldn't notice this difference, but eventually it, it did come to people's attention. God tells Adam, don't eat of the tree. And uh, then uh, uh, Eve says to the serpent, "Well, God said, "Don't eat of it, don't even touch it." Mm. And if every detail is significant, every detail has some some meaning, then they were eager to understand what this extra detail could mean. And eventually, they came to the conclusion that um, um, Adam was responsible because, Eve wasn't created when God first gave these instructions mm-hmm. to Adam. Uh, so God told Adam, don't uh, eat of this tree. And then after Eve was created, you know, she was brought to the Garden of Eden. She meets Adam, and she must have said, well, well you know, what are we supposed to do here? And he gave his own version of God's instructions with this additional proviso not to even touch So the what tree. does that teach us beyond that factual addition. So it teaches us that um, Adam made a mistake. He shouldn't have added this uh, extra proviso because presumably what happened, although of course this isn't actually told in the Bible, it's only told by these ancient interpreters, uh, presumably what happened next was the, the serpent came up to the tree and Uh, In those days, uh, uh, serpents presumably had hands and feet because uh, when God punishes the serpent, he takes away. He Mm -hmm. says, you're going to crawl on your belly. So presumably before that, he didn't. Uh, He must have come up to the tree and and hit it with his hand and said, look, uh, nothing happened to me and nothing will happen to you either if you touch it. And once uh, she saw that uh, she could touch it with impunity, then the whole the, the the whole prohibition collapsed well if you can touch it then you can certainly eat the fruit with impunity and she did and uh, all this happened because um, Adam added in this um, unnecessary proviso of, don't touch it
0: what meaning do you as an orthodox
1: Jew but as
0: one who certainly doesn't uh, argue that the bible has to be interpreted as literally true what meaning then do you derive that has bearing upon our lives and our situated existence.
1: Well, really, what I've tried to do in in this book, in the case of this story and and lots of other ones, is to show how different um, the way modern scholars read the Bible um, is from the way of these ancient interpreters. Modern scholars, I think, um, see the story of Adam and Eve as, uh, as I said before, a kind of change of lifestyle and one that uh, uh, that uh, is uh, pretty well known to modern day anthropologists. Uh, the modern day uh, s- uh, scholars like to talk about uh, what they call hunter gatherer societies. Uh-huh. And they say that's really what's being described in the in the Garden of Eden. Here are people who walk around naked, and uh, the food that they eat, they just pull off the trees or um, you know they don't uh, they don't uh, understand yet. Um, or or at least don't practice agriculture. You know, it takes some kind of insight to know that if you take uh, a perfectly good grain that you could otherwise eat yourself and stick it Uh into the ground. (coughs) And when next we encounter Adam and Eve, they've settled down and they've got some kids. Well, indeed, that's uh, God's uh, curse, as it were, to Adam and Eve, that you're going to have, you know, God says you've got to... uh, uh, earn your living by the sweat of your brow, uh, and and that's uh, you know uh, you know the change that uh, that takes place is that uh, uh, that uh, they now become an agricultural society. This is a moment that occurs in lots and lots of societies. Story of Cain and
0: Abel, of course, is very fascinating and very meaningful, but I'm skipping it over because I want to come. We we can't do all of the biblical right. stories, obviously. <laughs> I do want to come to uh, the origin story that the Jewish people created for themselves. Uh, that's uh, God uh, signaling Abraham out and giving uh, special instructions and forming a special deal for Abraham and his progeny. Um, how does that... Do you have it in, in your head or you want to go to to the Tanakh because you have it before you to hear just a few of the verses?
1: Well, no, I, I know how it, uh, it, uh, it
0: begins. In, in English this
1: time? Oh, uh, the, well, it would be like this. And the Lord said to Abraham... Uh, Lech lecha, kind of depart, get going uh, from your land uh, and from your kinsmen and from your father's house um, uh, to the land that I will uh, I I will show you. Uh, Abraham at the time is living uh, in a city called Ur. Ur of the Chaldeans. Of the Chaldeans, yes, and. and he departs. He doesn't immediately go to the land of Canaan, but um, uh, he, ma- he makes a, an intermediate stop at a place called Haran, and then from there uh, proceeds, to, uh, uh, proceeds to the land of Canaan, where God uh, um, decrees that this whole land will be given to Abraham and his descendants.
0: Now, either that's the way it really happened, and that was the beginning of the Jewish people, or that's a story that the Jewish people, as they were forming, Uh, to differentiate themselves from other Canaanites. That's the story that they elaborated and found useful or meaningful. Um, What do modern scholars, whether they're biblical scholars or, for that matter, archaeologists or even sociologists or historians, what do they make, uh, what do they say is, is encoded in that story that reflects something from actual history?
1: Well, the the story of Abraham is really a very interesting case because uh, uh, modern scholars have done a kind of zigzag uh, about uh, the his, uh, historical reliability of the Abraham story. I guess at the end of the nineteenth century, when um, modern scholarship was in full gear, people tended to discount these stories as having any real historical value. They were old legends and. Um, uh, or perhaps, uh, you know, human creations, but um, uh, but uh, uh, then along came a, a figure who really dominated much of biblical scholarship in the early 20th century. Uh, uh, William Foxwell Albright, uh, who... At mm-hmm. uh, uh, Johns Hopkins. Right. right. Uh, uh, the really father of modern biblical archaeology, when yeah, I say. I think it's fair to say, yes. Um, and he, uh, he had tremendous influence. He had many mm. students, and they went on to teach in great universities uh, all across America. Albright himself... <coughs> Uh, He was not. um, uh, I don't think it'd be fair to describe him as a fundamentalist, but uh, but he was certainly from a conservative Christian background, and he was someone who was, um, uh, you know, at least uh, had some predisposition to take these texts uh, seriously. And as he was um, uh, coming of age as a scholar, so was uh, archaeology coming of age as a discipline. People were uh, digging in Palestine, but also in uh, in uh, Iraq. And uh, it wasn't long before the, the uh, place that Abraham, that was said to be Abraham's uh, birthplace, Ur, was actually excavated. And many of the details of the, the Abraham stories struck um, uh, Albright is altogether uh, appropriate for that period. He, he gave, uh, he offered lots of proofs that uh, things that were said about uh, Abraham probably wouldn't have been said uh, 200 or 500 years later, um, and other scholars uh, followed in his path. So for a long while, uh, in the 20th century. Uh, people simply, uh, um, uh, you know, following the Albright school, were taught that uh, that there really was a great historical um, reliability to these uh, to these ancient uh, accounts. Um, then later on, I suppose, starting uh, after the middle of the 20th century, uh, people began. A number of important books were published that uh, that threw all that into question and. I guess now we're back to the point where modern scholars say we really don't know how much of this could be um, described as historically accurate or even reflective of the period that it uh, claims to describe.
0: Another great, uh, fascinating series of questions relates to the family dynamics uh, in and around the tents of Abraham, most particularly his relationship to his two sons. Uh, We know the story of Abraham and Isaac Mm -hmm. and uh, the sacrifice that God orders whatever God really has in mind, and the the meaning of that story has certainly exercised interpreters for 2,000 years or longer. But also, the division between uh, the Hebrews and those who become the Arabs is uh, there in the Old Testament. That's the other son. Right. Well, um,
1: Ishmael. Ishmael. Right. Um, Ishmael, is uh, in, indeed in in later tradition uh, seen as the father of the yeah. entire Arab nation. That might be. Uh, there certainly were Arabs in in biblical times, uh, uh, and uh, who didn't necessarily trace their origins back to Ishmael. But it's What terrible.
0: does the Quran do
1: with the origins
0: of the Arab or the well the origins? Does it deal with the, it? Doesn't deal with the Arab people. It deals with the with. Uh, God Allah and well, his relation to mankind.
1: Well, for for the Quran, um, the most I would say the most important aspect of Abraham um, uh, in the Quran, as in uh, these uh, ancient interpreters, mm-hmm. uh, is the idea that Abraham was the first monotheist, yeah. the first mm-hmm. person to understand that there um, uh, is only one God in the universe, and uh, and he's all-powerful and all-knowing. Um, Islam came along uh, relatively late, you know, in the 7th oh, century. Sure. Um, but uh, this idea that Abraham was the first monotheist uh, is well-attested among these ancient interpreters, going back uh, at least to the second, well, to the 3rd century uh, before the Common Era.
0: Now, what meaning does one put? Uh, there must have been... Interpretations over the last two thousand years or more of the Abraham and Isaac story. What's uh, what did the uh, did the old interpreters make? What do modern scholars make?
1: Well, I should say. Uh, let, let me just uh, uh, add about that. That it, you know, here's another area where modern scholarship has kind of kind of come into conflict with these ancient interpreters. Oh yes, sure. Modern scholars look at the tradition of. Um, of Abraham the monotheist and they really don't buy it. Uh, They say that uh, really if you read the story there's no place where Abraham asserts that there's only one God. And in fact um, they can trace the evolution of this idea back to these all-important very much neglected um, ancient interpreters. This idea of Abraham as a monotheist is really an an exegetical creation, an interpretive creation of these uh, uh, anonymous interpreters.
0: When the Bible has God uh, energizing and making an agreement with Abraham, God is not asserting, I
1: am the sole God, thou shalt have no gods before me. Well, that's not with Abraham. That's in the 10 Commandments. That's later. Um, that's to Moses. yeah. Right but uh, but more than that i, I think that uh, that modern scholars tend to say that Abraham obviously lived in uh, I mean, if they accept his existence, some of them don't in a kind of py- polytheistic yeah. world mm-hmm. and was perfectly at home there in a couple of passages he seems to identify the God of Israel with the God of uh, you know known uh, uh, known to us now from uh, uh, Canaanite writings. Uh, as their god, so I, I, I think that um, that they would generally say that monotheism is out of place in the Abrahamic.
0: Well, you actually, uh, in the book, uh, in your discussion of that and, uh, and adjoining material, you treat of the formation of uh, an image of the mon- or an idea of the monotheistic god as having taken quite a while, and uh, you mentioned at least two gods, Yahweh, and El.
1: Well, uh, I think uh, again, it's not me. It's really modern scholars. Yeah, reporting upon them. Yeah. They've, uh, they've, um, um, we know a great deal about the religion of Canaan, roughly speaking, thanks to um, an archaeological find that really began in 1928, um, in uh, uh, a place called Ras Shamra, which is in. Um, northern coastal Syria, north of Lebanon. Um, uh, Quite by accident, um, uh, uh, scholars came across this huge library of texts that was uh, written in a language very similar to Hebrew. And from the text, they learned that the name of the place, the ancient name of this place, uh, was Ugarit. And therefore, the language uh, is called uh, today Ugaritic. And from these uh, Ugaritic uh, tablets, uh, which were after a while uh, the, you know deciphered they um, um we modern scholars have been able to d- discover a great deal about the the religion of uh, ancient Canaan and its um, um, sometimes disturbing over- overlaps with uh, the religion of ancient Israel
0: well let's pick up on that on the the fusion of various gods and the emergence of a of a single uh ruling God, the single God of the universe, as conceived by now in all three of the so-called Abrahamic faiths. We return directly to the appearance of God as we know Him, capital H, after we pause for these words. And we return to James L. Kugel, we're drawing from, but hardly touching, all the riches of his wonderful new book, How to Read the Bible, A Guide to Scripture Then and Now, that is just published by Free Press. but we're at a very crucial moment, both in your book and indeed in the history of Western religion, the formation of the concept of a soul reigning an eternal God. Uh, it, modern scholarship does agree that by the time the Hebrews form up as a sort of a self-defined separate people, they are not yet fully monotheistic, are they?
1: Well, uh, no, and I I suppose I should I I should make it clear because it it probably hasn't been in what I've said up until now that really the the point of this book is not to say uh, well you know how dumb we used to be and now we figured out the truth. Uh Uh, My point is in some ways the opposite of that that. Modern biblical scholarship has um, has been going, and I try to talk about how it got started and and um, what its particular allegiances were. Uh, but a, a lot of uh, the things that it has turned up have been profoundly disturbing to people like me, um, and I dare say to lots of uh, you know almost anyone who uh, you know. Has
0: when you some, say people like me, you mean people of faith.
1: That's right, people who you have started some
0: from that. That base, did you?
1: I think I'm still at that base, yeah. uh, but uh, people, you know, of traditional religious belief, uh, both uh, Jews and Christians, uh, uh, if they know about this scholarship, are are bound to find uh, a lot of it uh, disturbing, and really, the point of my book is to try to um, uh, put together these ancient interpreters and their whole take on the Bible and and uh, make clear the contrast between their way of reading and understanding and the way these uh, modern scholars uh, read and understand. And I should say, by the way, uh, um, you know, I was often asked this uh, at Harvard, pe- that, you know, students would say, well, my uh, pastor, uh, you know, is a modern scholar, and he doesn't say any of this stuff. Uh, and. Uh, by modern scholars, I don't mean you know uh, necessarily your pastor. Uh, he's uh, undoubtedly modern and may well be a scholar. but um, but the modern scholars I'm talking about are are these uh, uh, professors of uh, ancient Near Eastern languages at universities like uh, Harvard or Yale, the University of Chicago mm-hmm. or Northwestern, or, for that matter, many European centers of study. and And they've pursued the uh, studying um, uh, the Bible. In the light of its um, of everything we know about its uh, historical yeah. setting, everything we uh, we can figure out about uh, ancient Semitic languages and so to, forth.
0: To, to take a quick excursion across the street uh-huh. to Christianity, uh, modern uh, New Testament scholarship has really disabused many of those scholars of belief in the basic Christological story. Well, they cannot retain many of them cannot retain uh, a sense of. Uh, Christ, the Redeemer of Christ, uh, uh, risen from the dead, and so on. They uh, find other meanings to impose upon it if they want to re- remain remain Christian, but they are not Christian in a sense that would please uh, fundamentalists and evangelicals.
1: Well, I think that's true. I don't, of course, uh, talk about that in this book, but I think in but general, it's a comparable problem, isn't right? It? Uh, not only comparable, but the two have sort of proceeded apace. Yeah. I think that's fair to say.
0: But you are. As, let's now deal with the fact that you are. By self-definition, and even by the yarmulke you're wearing at the moment, you are an Orthodox Jew. How then do you reconcile modern scholarship with your commitment to uh, the Orthodox faith?
1: Well, I I should say in this book, uh, you know, uh, it's really not a book about James Kugel. No, book about the Bible, and I, I really simply want to uh, report on. Yeah, but it's a question i put into the man James Kugel. Sure. Uh, At the end, I think uh, what I I do um, uh, try to uh, give in a a few paragraphs my own take on this problem, but one of the things that I I was careful to say there is that um, this is not a problem given to sort of universal solution. It's very much connected with uh, individual religions.
0: I'm so involved in this conversation that I've really quite forgotten my obligations, and we're two minutes overdue for... Uh, a news update, and so uh, with your permission we go directly to the newsroom and we'll be returning in just a few minutes to James Kugel, but now to Veronica Carter. You were in the middle, James Kugel, of what is sometimes called the Confessio Fide, explaining your own faith uh, in relation to your own scholarship.
1: Well, I think uh, what I was going to say is that um, um, for people who know about modern biblical scholarship, the problems that it's raised uh, for traditional faith are are very real, and uh, different people, I guess, have uh, uh, come at it from different angles. I I, I think um, um, it, it is very much dependent on uh, what traditional faith you belong to. The um, if there is a way of uh, reckoning with. Uh, modern scholarship, it's certainly going to be different for Jews and for Mm -hmm. Christians. And even among Christians, uh, it'll be very different for, um, say, uh, Baptists and uh, um, Presbyterians. And and certainly, uh, there'll be differences uh, 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 that separate uh, Protestants from Catholics in in, uh, uh, working things out. I guess um, these all really derive from um, the very beginnings of modern biblical scholarship. It was, uh, from the start, a Protestant undertaking, uh, one that was uh, pretty strongly opposed by um, uh, Catholics for uh, some but centuries. What do what you get
0: in modern but serious uh, Judaic orthodoxy? If we were to invite into this program, if we had invited into this program tonight an Orthodox rabbi from uh, the essentially Orthodox seminary uh, uh, or yeshiva, I should say, here in town, or if we were to invite in one of the rabbis of the Lubavitcher Chabad, which is well-established in Chicago, uh, would they be literalists? Would they insist that you have to read, uh, the, the, certainly, the five books of Moses as an accurate and essentially, um, uh, essentially error-free, inerrant account?
1: Well, I, I think it's fair to say that any of the people you mention, or any... Um... Uh, sort of Orthodox Rabbi, uh, almost any Orthodox Rabbi would say, really, this modern biblical scholarship is incompatible with traditional Jewish mm-hmm. belief, and, and they would
0: uh, opt for the traditional
1: belief. Yeah, and uh, and I, I have to say, I agree. I don't, I don't think the two are compatible. Uh, there are people who um have talked for a while about some great synthesis of uh, modern scholarship and, mm-hmm. and uh, traditional uh, Jewish uh, biblical interpretation, it, but it always seems to be just over the next hill. But you're
0: not asserting that all the modern scholarship that you review in of uh, this wonderful book of yours is incorrect.
1: No, mistaken. I'm, I'm, I'm simply uh, uh, trying to be uh, an honest reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, uh, for for um, uh, lots of Orthodox Jews, they say, I just don't want to know about that. And I remember um, just hearing as lots this... of
0: Orthodox or say uh, Christian fundamentalists don't right. want to know about
1: the modern. Uh, 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 biblical New Testament scholarship, right? And I, you know, I have nothing to say against them. Yeah, uh, I just have to say, for me personally, um, I I couldn't live with that. I really mm-hmm. just felt um, I had to somehow um, come to reckon with it and come to know it. Back to the story. Okay. One other
0: great chapter from the story, though there are a hundred tales we could tell, and you treat of all of them uh, in this uh, great book of yours, How to Read the Bible. But let us go to Egypt, and let's get out of Egypt. What do we make of that? In fact, where do you want to begin uh, with perhaps a verse or two from uh, the Bible itself? Did you want to... um... We we do have a recording of um, somebody reading the section involving the escape from Egypt and the Red Sea closing upon the pursuing Egyptians. You want to hear that? Sure. Let's take that directly. Um, The Egyptian army being overtaken by the... Red Sea closing upon them.
2: The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud, and troubled the host of the Egyptians, and took off their chariot wheels, that they drave them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. The Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared, And the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea. And the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore, and Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord, and believed the Lord and his servant Moses.
0: Well, there we have it, the whole story. Uh, The parting of the Red Sea, the escape of the Israelites, and then the Red Sea closes upon Pharaoh's Hosts and uh, they are drowned, as the old black spiritual has it. Yes.
1: Well, uh, one of the uh, things about modern biblical scholars and the way they approach the text is uh, uh, they don't uh, necessarily approach it as a seamless whole, uh, they um, like to look for uh, different layers in the way it was uh, uh, composed. And actually, in the starting in the verse uh, right at the after the last one that we heard, uh, the Israelites have now uh, crossed the Red Sea, and and the uh, Egyptians have been drowned, and the Israelites uh, sing a song of praise. And scholars are very interested, modern scholars, in that song of praise because it looks so ancient. Um, one of the things about all Semitic languages is uh, that if you go back far enough, they didn't uh, have a definite article. They didn't mm-hmm. use the word "the" very much the way modern Russian doesn't uh, use the the definite article or Latin didn't have a definite article. Um, and uh, only later on did, uh, did various Semitic languages uh, develop a, a word for the. In the song that the Israelites sing, there's no unambiguous case of a, uh, of a definite article. So scholars think this might be one of the very oldest uh, passages uh, in the whole Hebrew Bible. And um, when, they, when they look at it, at least uh, this was the theory of one great scholar uh, still around, Frank uh, Cross, his reading of the song, he pointed out um, as a he was a student of Albright's, and in his dissertation, I think he already pointed out that uh, that this um, this song actually doesn't describe the sea ever parting, uh, and so his claim was uh, I, I can't say it's unchallenged, but his claim was that really um, the whole account of the parting of the Red Sea is a is a mistake, a later mistake and that the, the original story was that the uh, uh, Israelites escaped, we're not told how, and the Egyptians pursued them probably in some sorts of boats or barges, and then um, the barges were sunk in some storm at sea and uh, <laughs> sank to the bottom of the sea. And, uh, but, but because uh, it, it said in the original account that the, uh, that the waves of the sea stood up in a heap, out of that idea developed, um, according to Cross, um, the notion that the sea actually split and the Israelites walked uh, walked in between these two heaps of water. You can't listen to that passage and not see Charlton Heston. Well, it's so beautifully uh, translated <laughs> in that old King James yeah. translation, which of course uh, nowadays uh, modern scholars, you know, have uh, with the great justification replaced with a more accurate.
0: Well, well while we're there. Over the Red Sea and onto the Sinai Peninsula. And there's a long, long uh, time uh, wandering in Sinai. And the crucial event
1: is, of course, at Mount Sinai,
0: whose location we cannot find. Right.
1: Is that right? No, there is a a place um, uh, in the Sinai Peninsula that uh, traditionally has been identified as Mount Sinai, but it's not that old a tradition, and even
0: it's not uh, that much of a mountain. Yeah. Uh,
1: and and calling it uh, calling it uh, uh, the Sinai Peninsula was a result of this being identified as Mount Sinai rather than yeah. vice versa. I know that uh, in the New Testament, uh, Paul says uh, Sinai is a mountain in Arabia, and modern scholars, uh, not uh, because of any loyalty, I think, to that particular verse in the New Testament, but just on the basis of their own notions, a lot of modern scholars think it was uh, really not in the Sinai Peninsula at all.
0: But what is one to make of the great story of uh, Moses on the mountain and the delivery uh, of the commandments?
1: Well, in some ways, that's the central story in the, the history Jews. of the Jewish people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, again, here modern scholarship bumps up against a traditional belief. Traditional uh, Jews and Christians take this as a recitation of factual history.
0: But you note in the book uh, that um, some of the content of um, the Ten Commandments uh, is, in fact, quite parallel to older documents, including, say, the Hammurabi Code.
1: Well, um, biblical law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the long section of uh, laws that follows it, mm-hmm. chapters 21 and 22 23 of the book of Exodus, um, that's been known and studied for a long time. Sure. But then, uh, you know, starting in a, a, about a century ago, people became, and saw, already at the end of the 19th century, became aware... Of, um, of these ancient Babylonian laws, first the Code of Hammurabi, and then other ancient laws. And they were struck by the fact that many of the laws dealt with similar situations and even used uh, similar language, and, uh, you know, the question that, uh, that that posed, again, for traditional belief is why should, you know, the, the, these Babylonian laws, uh, which are much older by any dating, than, um, even the most conservative dating of of uh, biblical law, uh, wh- why should they uh, use the same language, the same expressions, and often have, uh, you know, be altogether parallel to?
0: Doesn't that suggest, in fact, uh, dealing with prehistory or at least hidden, hidden or obscure history, that the Jews are part of a larger culture complex of um, Canaanite peoples, broadly speaking? And eventually they differentiate themselves out on some basis or other, but they racially, even by their DNA, one would have to guess, are much the same as lots of others who don't become the Jews.
1: Well, uh, I think uh, one of the basic premises of of, uh, modern scholars is uh, indeed that this uh, little people of Israel were part of a larger cultural continuum that they're bound to be.
0: You know the finding in, in recent uh, DNA research that uh, two peoples, of all the peoples in the world, two who are as closely related in terms of DNA parallel are um, the uh, uh, Jews, even Ashkenazic Jews on the one hand, and people who are defined as Arabs in the Middle East. These days,
1: well, there, uh, yeah, there certainly is that. I think, though, this is really not my field, but one of the amazing findings that I read about is how genetically similar Jews are all around the world. Exactly, um, they had prohibitions against uh, exogamy and uh, marrying uh, outside of the faith, and
0: that prohibition no longer applies. Half of all American Jews. Marry non-Jews, we know.
1: Well, right. It may, may, may not be that it no longer applies. May it may just no, no longer, longer be repeated. observed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're due once again for a round
0: of commercials, and shortly we will be on to the phones. Any questions you want to raise, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Uh, the number, as ever, is 591-7200. 7200 If you're up very early in Tel Aviv, and listening to us on the internet and want to join in the conversation, uh, the best way is via email. The email address is extension 720 at tribune.com. That applies, of course, also for the listeners we know we've got in Australia and in Singapore and elsewhere on the Pacific Rim. Uh, extension 720 at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com or 591-7200. The lines are open. The emails available. We return right after this. And my guest for the evening is James L. Kugel. Uh, The spelling is K-U-G-E-L. The new book from which we are drawing in our conversation, but we can hardly uh, touch or even indicate its riches, is How to Read the Bible, a guide to scripture then and now, just published by Free Press. Indeed, let's quickly do an overview of the book. Uh, You... You cover just about every story in the Old Testament, don't you?
1: Well, I uh, perhaps every is a little too um, uh, strong, but uh, I do try to hit all the high points. And beyond story, you cover the giving of the law. You cover... Absolutely. Uh, the prophecies and proverbs and psalms well, and yeah. all that. Uh,
0: is this book... Similarly, was your course at Harvard, on which I'm sure this book is in some part based... Um, uh, are they? Were they well received by the Orthodox community?
1: Oh well, I I, I think the students who uh, took the course uh, uh, liked it, but I I was always uh, pretty careful uh, at the beginning of the course, as I'm careful at the beginning mm-hmm. of this book, to say that it's not for everybody and that particularly people of traditional uh, belief, you know, might May find it, uh, it disturbing. Yeah. And uh, so I'm sure there were plenty of people who didn't take the course. We've not talked about Christianity at all
0: uh, tonight. All the same, uh, Christianity and the New Testament draws upon many uh, passages from the Old Testament as prophetic of uh, the Messiah to come, namely Jesus who came. Uh, how do you relate <clears throat> to the connections between the two Testaments?
1: Well, uh, the the fact is that the first Christians uh, were Jews, and they were altogether steeped in the interpretations of these ancient interpreters. Uh, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So uh, at least initially, their way of reading um, passages, stories from the Hebrew Bible, uh, wasn't terribly different from uh, the way um, uh, other Jews. Uh, read these stories. But eventually, uh, one of the ways that uh, these early Christians came to view Scripture, in fact, this was there almost from the beginning, was um, as predictive of the of events in their own time, the life of Jesus and the things that are uh, recounted in the New Testament. And so they began to look for connections. One of them was the story that you mentioned briefly and we didn't really get to talk about, but when Abraham is ordered to sacrifice his son yeah. Isaac, this was seen as a kind of foreshadowing of um, the uh, story of the crucifixion. Uh, in fact, when Paul describes the uh, crucifixion, he describes it in terms that are reminiscent of the story of Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac, and then many of the passages even before Paul—I mean, um, many of the passages in the uh, prophet Isaiah and elsewhere—were taken as predictive of the events of the uh, of the N- New Testament, and so. Uh, uh, that way of reading became a very standard Christian fare. Uh, a little Latin saying that was very popular in the Middle Ages was, uh, Quod in vetere latet in novo patet, that which is hidden in the Old Testament is uh, uh, said openly in the in the New. In fact, Christian theologians make a great deal of
0: uh, this simple formula. The God of the Old Testament is the God of vengeance, the God of the New Testament is the God of love.
1: Well, right, I, I've I've heard that too, but uh, frankly, I, I I don't think that's uh, quite quite as venerable as some of the other things that I've mentioned. Quite as old, that is to say, um, and I I um I think frankly it doesn't really do justice to uh, the God of either Testament. Uh, as I said, the first Christians were Jews. I don't think they had. Um, uh, they certainly had uh, areas in which they uh, uh, disagreed with their fellow Jews, but um, the, the characterization of, uh, of the, the, the God of uh, Christianity as a God of love and and of Judaism as a God of wrath—that that certainly is something that uh, the Jews even mm-hmm. today wouldn't uh, they wouldn't agree with.
0: But I can't resist reading to you a commentary upon. The Old Testament, particularly from another scholar who lived in the same town you did for many years, namely Cambridge, Massachusetts, (laughs) though he was located at MIT rather than at Harvard. Um, You can find things in the traditional religions which are very benign and decent and wonderful, and so on, but I mean the Bible is probably the most genocidal book in the literary canon. The god of the Bible, not only did he order his chosen people to carry out literal genocide, I mean, wipe out every Amalekite, to the last man, woman, child, and you know, donkey, and so on, because hundreds of years ago, they got in your way when you were trying to cross the desert. Not only did he do things like that, but after all, the God of the Bible was ready to destroy every living creature on earth, because some humans irritated him. That's the story of Noah. I mean, that's beyond genocide. You don't know how to describe this creature. Somebody offended him, and he was going to destroy every living being on earth? And so on and so on. It's a rant by Noam Chomsky. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think he had a score to settle with uh, traditional religious belief. Uh, he's a great linguist, I must say. I'm a big fan of uh, Chomsky and uh, linguistics. Uh, but none of Chomsky and politics. But perhaps maybe. less of Chomsky and politics, yes. Um, uh, but um, uh, I don't think he's really being uh, fair. Uh, the um, Amalekites, who he mentioned, they just didn't get in the way. They actually attacked Israel when it was at its weakest, and uh, and they were the ones who tried to annihilate the uh, Israelites. And, but there was something that I, I I I actually think I mentioned this in in talking about the the story of the the flood that he mentions that. Um, That, uh, um, indeed, uh, some modern apologists say, well, this is a perfect example of, uh, you know, how wrathful the God of the Uh Old Testament is as opposed to the uh, loving God of the New Testament. Um, The fact is, um, uh, terrible things happen in life. Uh, We ourselves are witness to a... a great flood that occurred uh, five years ago, or however long it was, it was that great tsunami. Less than that, uh, was that two, uh, two, or, or three witness years also ago, to real genocides that have occurred in our time. Absolutely, in our own this last century gone by, that was a, a horrible. You know, it was kind of industrial scale genocide, mm-hmm. uh, not just in uh... you know nazi germany but uh... one an historian and, calls it that slum of a century right well said uh, you know stalin's russia look at all that went on there and, mm-hmm. um, uh... i think people who um, uh, look at natural catastrophes or political disasters people mm-hmm. who believe in god uh... it's uh, somehow have to um, connect these events with the ruler of the universe, and uh, uh, oh. if not, uh, then uh, then it's fine to say, you know, well, God is just loving, but then who's doing all these so terrible you're, you're things? So you're regulating
0: there one of the major categories of serious theology, uh, commonly called theodicy, that portion of theology which asks how can a just and loving God preside over a world in which so much evil
1: occurs right uh, well if you were looking for an answer to that question <laughs> I wasn't going to supply but I think it it is true that uh, that um, um, these uh, ancient interpreters had their eyes wide open and they they said you know this somehow has to all come together in yeah. uh, in our own notion of God that's very nicely said and we pause
0: a quick round of um, Uh, A newscast, and then a quick round of commercials, and then on to your phone calls and email, 5917200, and for email, extension 720 at Tribune.com, and to the newsroom and Veronica Our guest is James L. Kugel. We've been drawing from his very important and utterly readable new book, How to Read the Bible, a guide to scripture then and now. That's published by Free Press. We go directly to the phones, and here is the first caller. Good evening. Good evening. Yes,
4: ma'am. Um, my name's Deporah and I'm post-denominational Jew, I guess you'd say. My question is, with the new writings and the new discoveries and the modern interpretation, does it change our actions and the ethics of the way we act in any way? The musar, uh, the daily carrying out of a decent life.
1: Well, I, I think uh, I'm not sure who the we in that uh, sentence is, but uh, I I think that um, w- what I try to show is, uh, in this book is how um, for these uh, ancient interpreters and consequently for Jews and Christians for centuries ever afterwards, uh, the Bible was really a, a kind of uh, guide to daily life. It It told you really everything you needed to know. Uh, about what to do in life, and um, I think that uh, underlies your question, and I think the answer is uh, even for post-denominational Jews, uh, it it continues to play that role, Jews and Christians.
4: It does, uh, none of the uh, behaviors would change because of the new found information or the modern interpretation.
1: Well, I think uh, look, I wouldn't sign on to that. i I think uh, things change um. Uh, Even long before modern scholarship uh, came along, all sorts of things uh, uh, changed and evolved, and I'm sure that uh, that's a process that's going to continue. But I don't know of any sphere in life that's more conservative than religion, so change doesn't happen easily. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Glad to have heard from you. Let's go quickly to another.
0: And you are on the air. Good evening.
4: Uh, Good evening. First of all, it's a privilege to speak with you, uh, Professor Kugel. I've read a number of your books, including uh, The Art of Biblical Poetry and some of your articles, and uh, thank you. Um, I wanted to um, thank you for writing this book, especially since the publication of um, Professor Mark Bredler's recent book, in which he makes, in my opinion, a very poor explanation of uh, synthesizing religious observance and modern biblical scholarship. But my question to you is this, would you agree, perhaps embellish in the fact that it's virtually impossible to refer to the written Bible without reference to the oral tradition, especially of the rabbis and the Talmud, not just because all law requires explanation, whatever civilization, but it also seems inherent in the Torah itself.
1: Well, I'm I'm so glad you asked that question, because this is really, I think, um, um, a major point. When when I talked about the differences in uh, trying to come to grips with um, modern biblical scholarship, the differences that one can uh, find uh, in different religious groups, it's very important to mention that uh, Judaism almost, uh, well, from the very beginning, has in, had, in addition to the actual written text of the Bible, a robust tradition about how that text is to be interpreted. In fact, um, traditional Jews speak of there being two Torahs, uh, you know, the, the written Torah and the Torah Shebel Peh, the so-called oral Torah, which um, uh, uh, elaborates on what's uh, uh, written and uh, teaches how it's to be applied to specific uh, situations. Uh, th- those are the things that you mentioned, the uh, Midrashim and the Talmud and so forth. And I think, um, um, in a way, that's, uh, that offers Judaism uh, a, a kind of reckoning with uh, modern scholarship that may not be available, uh, at least not in the same strength, uh, in other religious traditions.
4: Uh, well, uh, yeah, and I, I would agree with that. I mean, just to any serious reader of the Torah, just at any any time or any uh, any verse or any chapter, just trying to understand it with its literal meaning is, is just impossible without reference to...
1: Well, I'll just uh, give you the, you know, traditional examples. You know, it says in... In the Torah, that uh, you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. But uh, but what does work mean? Uh, uh, you know, uh, if uh, for example uh, I'm a farmer, uh, I assume that means I can't do any farming on the Sabbath. But uh, does it also prohibit me from climbing up on my roof and fixing a, a leak that I have uh, in in my roof? Uh, I'm not. That's not my profession. Or, or conversely, if I'm a roofer, uh, uh, can I go and tend my garden on the Sabbath? These were questions that had to be answered, so I agree with you. Um, the, You know, the, the Torah on its own um, seemed uh, here, there, and everywhere to call out for some uh, further precision or application to daily life, and that's what these uh, other books in the Jewish tradition have set out to do. Sir, we thank you for the call, and we will move on quickly to yet another
0: 5917200 if you've been trying to reach us we've now got one or two lines available so try again quickly on 5917200 and you are on the air good evening
3: thank you for taking my call so the study of the bible involves meanings at different levels when we talk of monotheism in judaism What does that mean or imply as to different levels of the significance of saying there is one God apart from differentiating from the pagan religions? And um, vis-a-vis man's relationship with the cosmos, and it, it hits me every Yom Kippur in the Reformed tradition in the prayer book where there's one statement urging us to recognize that there is one humanity on earth as there is one God in heaven.
1: Right. I I think that, uh, you know, there's a definite uh, parallel there. And the idea that there was one creator who created, uh, this is actually, I'm simply paraphrasing something in the Talmud, who who started off uh, uh, by creating a single couple, Adam and Eve, Um, So that uh, uh, nobody uh, in later generations can say, my ancestors are more illustrious than yours. Uh, We actually all come from the same uh, two original ancestors. And uh, uh, I think that, uh, you know, uh, the idea of a single god ruling over all of humanity, uh, not just, uh, you know, one people or another, Um, uh, carries with it the same uh, moral imperative. And how do
3: you impart that when we have a more diverse society, let's say, with you discussing this with Hindus or whatever, and I don't know who who it was who said the righteous of all nations are God's chosen people, but we have righteous Mm -hmm. people in different religions, and you try to explain to people in non-monotheistic religions uh, the difference. It becomes a, um, a very challenging cultural task.
1: Well, right I, I, I I'm not sure it's it's my mission as I say I'm just a Bible professor and I uh, you know I want to report on uh, on what I know about the Bible but certainly that uh, people come from very different uh, uh, backgrounds and uh, uh, I think the best that you can do is to try to give an honest reckoning of what your background says what uh, what uh, your own religious tenets are and uh, and exchange ideas with people from uh, very different points of view.
0: Sir, beautiful. Thank you. We thank you, sir. Glad to have heard from you. And the last round of commercials beckons. We'll take care of those. And then back to more calls, Five nine one seven two double zero. And directly back to Dr. James Kugel, I want to once again say, assert, pronounce that this book is of exceptional interest and it's wonderful to read and it is illuminating on every page. How to Read the Bible, A Guide to Scripture Then and Now by James L. Kugel is just published by Free Press. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number and you are on the air. Good evening.
3: Good evening. Uh, related to the definition of modern scholarship is that not basically scholars who reject as supernatural or therefore would reject any type of miracles and just reinterpret those as some type of a story.
1: Well, that's a a good point, I think. Uh, It's not often addressed by modern scholars. You know, it's quite interesting that um, uh, if you go back a generation and look at the leading scholars uh, flourished in the middle of the 20th century or the earlier part of the 20th century, they were often... Uh, either clergymen themselves and mostly men and not women and or uh, even more typically uh, the sons of uh, clergymen and uh, they're reluctant to address uh, that question openly but uh, I don't think you have to read very far between the lines to see that uh, the miraculous and you know uh, the divine purely divine as opposed to human is is, uh, is lacking in the way that they do to try to read this, uh, read uh, the Bible. So that's a good point.
0: And your effort in this book, um, among other efforts, your purpose, as I understand you, is really to make clear the, or to draw upon the presence of the divine, which emerges no matter how much modern scholarship is applied to the materials of the Bible.
1: Well, they, yeah, that's definitely true.
0: Yeah, that clearly is something you feel deeply, and that you convey in this very
1: book? Well, as, as I say, I really I didn't want to make this a book about myself, but just about the Bible and mm. and the the very different ways that these two groups of interpreters uh, have uh, gone at it. What I say at some point in the Bible, it's, it's what I feel, is that I have really great admiration for both groups of interpreters. I'm not out to demonize one or the other. Uh, but I guess the point of the book is they just um, uh, are, uh, are quite irreconcilable one with the other.
0: And with that, let us go back to the phones. five nine one seven two double zero. Good evening. You're on the air.
4: Good evening. I'm enjoying the program very much. Uh, I'm a Christian, and in our Bible study, uh, different members have different versions of the Bible, and uh, sometimes the text seems so different between some of the older Bibles versus the, uh, say, the Standard Revised Bible that we use. Uh, It almost changes the meaning, and I'm wondering, in the Old Testament, if that has happened or if something changes, does that pretty much change, you know, throughout the uh, Bibles?
1: Well, I think that's a great uh, question. the, the fact is that um, those old translations—I mean, uh, certainly the one that we've been listening to, uh, the King James—is a beautiful translation. It's a—it's a pity to have to let it go, but um, nowadays there are many things that we know about the just the meaning of individual words that uh, those King James translators didn't know. So that's why there has been a profusion of but, modern. But
0: actually. You, you get rid of some of the wonderfully alluring and slightly uh, elliptical or paradoxical meanings. As for example, in my father's house are many mansions, is now more properly translated as in my father's house are many tents, no. <laughs> but mansions is far more satisfying than tents.
1: Well, I think uh, you know, the things that I think about are, that are uh, you know problematic, but uh, I, I mentioned some of them. The, the very common word for soul In uh, in Biblical Hebrew, there are several words, but I mean the word uh, nephesh in in Hebrew. Um, We now know um, it meant soul, but it also meant uh, kind of uh, the throat or the neck, and uh, by extension, appetite, uh, because that's where your food goes. Uh, and all those meanings were bound up with uh, with one another. So when it says, for example, uh, the waters have risen unto my soul, we now know it, it doesn't mean anything quite that spiritual. It means the waters are up at my neck and I'm about to drown. You know, maybe a little more spiritually uh, when um, the psalm says that uh, as a heart panteth after water, Heart meaning, uh, you know, that animal. Uh, um, so uh, does my soul pant after you? It makes sense because the soul uh, it wants water, the neck or the throat uh, needs water to survive.
0: Our thanks to the caller and quickly to another. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening. Yes, sir.
3: I was wondering, um, in the uh, Catholic Church, up until I think it was the 1960s, um, Catholics were not allowed to eat meat on Fridays, and I was wondering if, in the Jewish faith, the restrictions on uh, diet could not uh, be adjusted in some way.
0: Sir, you're slowing yourself down because you've got the radio going, um, and the time delay is confusing. Do turn the radio off, and let's uh, begin to approach this question. Well,
1: I, I think, uh, uh, as as far as I understand it, the uh, prohibition of uh, or the custom not to eat uh, meat on Friday was connected with uh, Friday as the day of the crucifixion. Um, uh, Jewish uh, dietary restrictions are uh, um, uh, based uh, in part on things that are uh, that appear in the in the Bible, uh, and in part on on uh, later additions, uh, but. Uh, uh, why exactly they're there in the Bible has been the subject of lively discussion among uh, modern scholars. Uh, it's uh, you wouldn't think so, but uh, there's an enormous literature about it. it. Used to be, people said, "Oh, well, these were old." All- Health restrictions are based on, you know, avoiding disease and so forth. Uh, but I, I think it'd be fair to say um, modern scholars don't buy into that. Uh, what do
0: they suggest instead?
1: Well, they have a very, you know, they, in this this case, there was one, um, uh, uh, not so much Bible scholar as anthropologist. Uh, who uh, advanced the idea that this was a kind of way of understanding the world. Uh, If you look at Mm -hmm. the food prohibitions among uh, uh, different uh, peoples, they often... Uh, you know, uh, are based on uh, divisions and different categories, and those difficult border cases that seem to um, overlap categories uh, needed, uh, needed to uh, have some kind of precise explanation. Um, uh, th- those are uh, really, the, I think, the dominant trends nowadays. I fear we've come almost to the end of the available time.
0: Um, and I do thank you most sincerely for joining us tonight. Well, it was my great pleasure. It's been an exceptional evening for me, and the book is an exceptional book. How to Read the Bible, A Guide to
3: Scripture Then and Now by James Google, uh, is published by Free Press.